Good morning, Saints. It's good to see you guys again. We're going to continue in our journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, setting the, setting the foundation of just humanity and creation and everything. Uh, and as you turn there very quickly to the text that was just read, as I was uh, studying this text um, and its themes, I kept thinking about and wondering why there are so many excessive warning labels on products. I promise this all, it all fits together. Just stick with me for a little bit. There was actually a company that sells windshield sunshades, and they instructed their customers to not drive with a sunshade in place. <laughs> I guess there's a reason why it was there, because someone tried it. A stroller company was very helpful. They went the extra mile to uh, remind parents to remove their child from the stroller before folding it. And then, you know, out of love for those with allergies, I'm grateful for warnings like, this product may contain eggs, but it's kind of confusing when it's on an egg carton. <laughs> it said may, there's some uncertainty there, like, what do we eat anyway? So, okay, there's one more, at least, perhaps. Uh, so, there's one, I'll just, I'll just read this one. It says, the vanishing fabric marker, vanishing fabric marker, should not be used as a writing instrument for signing checks or any other legal documents. And I was like, man, it, I guess people have tried it. So there's, there's certainly crazy and excessive labels like this, but there's some that are very helpful. For example, if you go to a pharmacist and you get a, uh, um, some sort of medicine, and it, ha it might have a sticker on it that say, may cause drowsiness, use caution when operating a car or heavy machinery. Appreciate that. Another one that's just a very, uh, a single word on a box that says, fragile. Because, you know, if you're helping somebody to move, you might not know what's in the, in the box. If it's grandma's um, fine china, you don't want to throw it around like a box of pillows. And so in the instance of the medicine bottle or fragile on the box, I'm grateful for the guidance and the warning of those who have put this stuff together or who packed the box. And in the same way, our creator God, the maker of heaven and earth, he knows how this world that he created is designed. And so he's given us some wonderful instruction in these early chapters in Genesis about how this world works and how to worship him and how to know him and how to glorify him in it. And so as we make our way through the creation account, both in Genesis chapter 1 and in 2, it's important to remember that Moses was not trying to uh, answer every modern scientific question. He was trying to communicate, however, to Israel that the God of the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of Mount Sinai is God, the creator. That's what he's trying to communicate to his audience. Pastor Tony alluded to uh, this two weeks ago, but I'll say it again. Science is valuable, certainly is, because it tells us what is. It helps us understand what is, what is out there. But theology is valuable because it, it tells us what something is for, what it means. I think we see this very clearly in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky uh, proclaims the works of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, and night after night they communicate knowledge. So these verses, they don't tell us what kind of clouds are out there, be they cumulus or stratus clouds, or the stars in particular that they're referring to. We are, however, told that the purpose of the stars and the sky are, verse 1, to declare the glory of God. With that said, I'm always encouraged by members of this church and other believers who are gifted and excel in the sciences. That's just not me. 
but I appreciate you. Uh, I love the scientific process or watching others do it, uh, reading about it, but I think we ought to glorify God and express our gratitude to him for creating and sustaining a world where exploration and experimentation is actually possible. Okay, so let's go, on, let's go ahead and begin in verse 4 of our text today after my little rambly introduction. Okay, so these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made, the, made earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant uh, uh, of the field had sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was, was going up from the land and was watering the, the, the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So right off the bat in verse 5, we're introduced to two problems here. There are no bushes and there are no small plants. So the word bush here represents plants that grow, or things that grow naturally. For example, I mean, I, I appreciate a, a well-kept yard, and so things that grow naturally are weeds, crabgrass, dandelions, and all the stuff we don't want in our grass. We have to work hard, though, to cultivate the grass itself. But by contrast, the small plants in the text are things like wheat and corn and beans, things that grow when they're cultivated by people. And so to, to, uh, God gave a two-part solution to this problem in verses 6 and 7. He said, first, the, the Lord provided a mist to water the ground. Second, he created a man to cultivate the land. So let's talk about this mist for a second. This mist that God provided, it does underscore uh, one of the major points of the story uh, that Moses was trying to communicate to his original readers, and it reminds Israel that the Lord, God, Yahweh, is the one who provides the water. And so this is especially important as now God's people are not in, in captivity in Egypt anymore. They're in the promised land where they're fully dependent on the rain for the crops to grow. So if you, if you go back to Egypt and you understand that the Nile River, it would uh, basically flood and then it would go down. And where the water was in that season, it would leave water, or land that was well irrigated. You just plant your stuff, and it would grow. It was well watered automatically. But now uh, Moses is trying to tell them, uh, don't inquire of Baal in the promised land to give you water. Inquire of the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. God is the one who sends the mist. And then secondly, now uh, the solution for no small plants uh, God created humanity, and as verse 7 said, God created them from the dust of the ground. And there's several nuances here, but I just want to chase down two. But just a fair warning, it's about to get really nerdy for like 20 seconds. And if you're not down with, with nerding out, you can just plug your ears and sing the happy birthday song, and by the time you're at the end, we'll be done. So first thing, uh, there's a play on words between man, Adam in Hebrew, and uh, ground, which is Adamah in Hebrew. So this is here because the man is related to the ground by his very constitution, his, what he's made of, which makes him perfectly suited to work the ground, which is the solution for there being no small plants. You guys see that? Okay. We'll try again. Second thing. 
Our dusty constitution reminds me of one of my favorite verses, and we see this in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And so this is a reminder that, yes, God's standard is righteousness, perfect holiness, absolute perfection, but there is no way that any of us will ever reach up to that standard. But we have Jesus. And so he knows that we are only dust. God is, is quick to acknowledge the, and forgive us if we receive the forgiveness that we have from Jesus because he remembers that we are dust. So after God set, uh, set, sent the mist and formed the man in the garden, the garden is the context of the rest of the chapter. And we'll continue reading about this in verses 8 to 14. And, and get this, as we're reading about this, we are seeing that this is a garden temple that we're, that we're being exposed to here. So as you think about the descriptions of, uh, uh, that, we're, that we're reading right now, think of God is, is describing this garden temple for us to then dwell in, or for Adam and Eve to dwell in. Okay, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there put the man whom he formed. He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The first was named Pishon, and it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and Bedellum and Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, verse 14. And the name of the third river was the, is the Tigris, which flows around Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so in this, we are seeing, again, this garden temple being taken place. But right off the bat, we are informed in verse 8 that we're given some information that's counter to um, uh, our normal understanding. So we, we used to call this the Garden of Eden. We still do. But this text reads that there's a garden in Eden. And so the, the footprint of Eden is actually larger than the garden. And so as we jump down to verse uh, 10 to 14... We also get some additional information about this garden temple, about these rivers, and about the resources that flowed from the land. And so I bet you there's somebody in here who's kind of making a map on the back of their hand because you're going to try to go out from the service and try to find the Garden of Eden. Or somebody's in the, in the maps, you know, my favorite book of the Bible when I was growing up, you know, like triangulating where the, these rivers are, uh, trying to find the Garden of Eden. But, I mean, no one's found it at this point, but hey, go for it. Uh, but, the re but the thing is, this, this is a question that emerged in me. Well, if we have all this uh, description of these precious uh, materials and these rivers and all these things, why is it here if we're not to try to find it? Well, this demonstrates that God is, he wants to be with his people in this garden temple. This is a game changer. So, so we have Israel who's receiving this word from, from God through Moses, and, and, and it's saying, hey, the creator God, he wants to be with you. He wants to be, he's relational, and he wants to be with you. This is mind-blowing. And so not only does God want to spend time with us, 
this specific place of this temple, this temple is, it foreshadows the, the tabernacle and the temple later in the Old Testament, but also it's, that's the place where humanity enjoyed God's presence the clearest. So now we've, we've set up the arrival for, of humanity in the midst of this garden temple. So let's go ahead and read verses seven, uh, 15 to 17. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God command, uh, 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 commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So right off the bat, there's a hidden gem in verse 15 here, and it's the word put. And that sounds like it's unimpressive, but there's a lot going on there. So this is unlike the puts that we see in verse 8. And so the difference is really only noticeable in the Hebrew, but uh, verse 8 uses a common word put, but there's in verse 15 two, a twofold meaning that we see here. And so in both senses are behind what we're, what we're reading. The first one is that God put humanity in the garden so that they could rest and be safe. So that putting is for the purpose of them resting and being safe. Secondly, the second significance behind the word put is that God put humanity uh, in the garden because humanity was to be a part of God's presence. So if you bring those two things together, but in both senses for the word put, the man was put into the garden where he could rest, be safe, and be dedicated to worshiping the Lord. So uh, this, this life is tough. I know that many of us are going through various trials, we know that this is a dog-eat-dog world. There's too many of us who have graduated from the school of hard knocks, but it blesses me this morning to know that it was God's original intent to put us to rest and be safe with him. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait until the day that by his grace, he's going to put us in his kingdom so we'll be with him forever. We're going to come full circle, y'all, He's going to put us in that place with rest and safety and worship, and it's for our good and for his glory, and I just can't wait to get there. So at the end of verse 15, it highlights the cultural mandate that Pastor Tony summarized a couple weeks ago, but as a refresher, the cultural mandate is humanity's assignment to exercise dominion over the earth, to subdue it and to develop its hidden potential. So God uh, intentionally left his creation unfinished so that his vice regents, humanity, could express their creative image-bearing capacity. And this is how we go from a garden in Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we have this city. You guys see that? Garden to city. It's because we are doing our cultivating and keeping job. So humanity is called to steward the land and the animals uh, in a way that dignifies them, not abuses them and we subdue them uh, in such a way that glorifies God. Humanity's culture-making efforts, they mirror God's creative activity, which is in stark contrast to the gods of Canaan who just existed to be served. But we see our God in Genesis working for our good, and we find him speaking things into existence, separating light from darkness, making humanity into his image, just to name a few. And then for us who are his image bearers, we worship him by bringing chaos into order in our own lives. And just to give you some examples, there's water is God's creation, but human cultivation uh, 
uh, produces canals in French drains. Again, I like my grass. If you know how to install a French drain, let me know because I need your help. Chickpeas are God's creation, but human cultivation produces falafels. Amen? I'll see you all at Cecil's for lunch. Uh, sounds and colors are God's creation, but human cultivation produces music and art. Time is God's creation, but human cultivation produces a wise schedule. Children are God's creation, but parents and teachers know all too well that it takes cultivation to produce a functioning adult. And to the parent who is day after day grinding, uh, grinding it out, don't grow weary in well-doing. The days are long, but the years are short. So human cultivation is an act of worship. But it's important for us to know who we're worshiping in our cultivation. Do we worship God or ourselves or any other created thing? And I guarantee you, if you are being subconscious and not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. David Foster Wallace, who's a novelist and college professor, gave a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005 where he emphasized the fact that mankind is made to worship. And again, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but at least he was, he was on to something here, and I thought it'd be good to share it with you. Uh, in the day-to-day trenches of, of, of adult life, he says, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. So, and the uh, compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, and he means Jesus Christ there, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they're where you, uh, you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others uh, to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, uh, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is where we get uh, the imposter syndrome that everyone talks about these days. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're, 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 uh, it's, not, it's, it's not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. We are going to worship something. He's right here. It's a matter of what we actually do worship. So we must do all things to the glory of God. That's what we're made for. And when we do all things to God's glory, then our aspirations won't crush us. Because then we're not looking to them to do something that they're never intended to do, which is to give us purpose and joy and happiness in those things. We find those things in Christ, then we can do other things to God's glory. So now we find ourselves in verses 16 and 17 where God gave Adam freedom to eat of any tree of the garden, but God warned him to stay away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so I don't want to say too much here because I know Pastor Manny is going to be preaching this text next week uh, in Genesis chapter 3, but I'll, I'll give it just a little, give you a little spoiler alert. Um, God gave uh, humanity the means of expressing their love and devotion 
to him by eating of the trees that they were allowed to eat. Or they could demonstrate their displeasure by eating from the forbidden tree. So my daughter Kaya, she always asks a lot of questions. Like a lot of questions. And uh, it, some of them are pretty good. So as a family, a couple of weeks ago, we read Genesis chapter 3, or our little Bible summary of Genesis chapter 3. And she asked me, Daddy, why, why would God put a tree in the garden if he knew that they, they might disobey? And my answer was, well, it gives the opportunity, uh, well, if, if, if there's no opportunity to disobey, is what I said, then love is not genuine. It's manipulation. But God's desire was that humanity would worship and obey and reap all the benefits of being with God. And so I'll let Pastor Manny either pick up where I left off right here, or he can fix it. Uh, we'll, we'll see what he does next week. So let's go to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, uh, the Lord God made every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought him to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave uh, names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every uh, beast of the field. But for Adam, this is important, there was not, there is not found a helper fit for him. Okay, so there was a cadence going on. Starting in chapter 1 of Genesis, it is good. At the end of every day, it is good. It is good. Climaxes with the, uh, with the uh, uh, creation of humanity. It is very good. But then now in verse uh, 18, it says, it's not good? So the original readers of the, this book would have been very much inclined to patterns in literature. And for them, this would have hit them like a freight train. It's like, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, you're, you're back in your car, after a nice day, you're strolling down, you know, 540, and you got your best CD on, and then all of a sudden, it skips. It is not good. <laughs> you know, like, the, the CD, like, kids don't understand these days with your MP3s how spoiled you are. If you got a scratch that was deep, it was over. And so it's jarring. It's not okay. And so we see that it's not good. So I'm trying to give you the freight, the weight of what the readers would have been feeling when it said it's not good after everything being good, 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 and very good. And so after the original readers were shocked by the not good, there are perhaps some contemporary readers who are uh, taken aback by the term helper. It's important to understand that the word helper here is not uh, one that's demeaning. It's one of differentiation. In the Hebrew, it does not suggest a, a subordination in some ways that the English word helper does. In fact, throughout the scripture, God is frequently described as the helper of his people. And so this is, this is not uh, quite like a butler, but it's more like an ally. And so it's also intentional that matters of headship are, are, de are described in scripture for sure, but the, the point of this verse is to demonstrate that Eve is another of the same kind. She is human, and that's good for us to see here. And so while God does uh, make humanity male and female, uh, being an image bearer is our primary marker that is being pushed on right here. And this is why we see in Scripture that a lot of the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, helps us be more Christ-like. It is not primarily focused on outlining biblical manhood and womanhood. It's about uh, shaping us into the likeness of Christ. 
So this also upends the assumption that every man is the authority over, over every woman. So while a man might be the head of his household, he is a brother or sister to other ladies in the church. So as we zoom out of this, this verse into the rest of Scripture, we do see Paul and other, others sort of uh, indicating very clearly that there are roles like the head of the house and the head of the church that are gendered masculine for certain, but in this particular verse, what we're seeing is that God said it's not good for man to be alone, and I'll make a helper who's of the same kind fit for him, one that's human. And so then we go to verse 20, and it's kind of interesting in my opinion. And so God does something that's completely random. Think about it. He just says, it is not good for man to be alone. And everyone's on the edge of their seats, wondering what's going to happen. And then he parades every living animal in front of Adam, one by one, to name them. That's strange. I don't, I'm like, I was, but, but as I begin to sort of dig into it, God uh, having Adam name the animals is very significant. God could have named the animals himself. God, God could have had Adam name the animals at a different time, but God allowed the tension to build in the story because then, after this point, Adam himself knows that there's not one who is fit for him. So let's read what happens in um, the rest of our text today. Beginning in verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Uh, get it, that, that one of the same kind, a human. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and, the, and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So these verses, they introduce us to two things, Eve and then also the first marriage. So let's begin with the creation of Eve. And so the man falls into a deep sleep at God's hand, and then God borrowed a rib, which I always say borrow, but it's, he just took it because he didn't give it back. He borrowed a rib to make this suitable helper and so, while I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill of the rib situation, I do think what Matthew Henry says is very thoughtful for us to consider. The woman was, he says, made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not, or, nor of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, again, human, and then under, uh, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. After this introduction to Eve, Adam, he broke out in a song. <laughs> and this is not the last time that a, a, a guy sees a girl and breaks out in a song. Sometimes it might just be in his heart. But for those who are really bold, he'll just bust out into a song. And um, as a side note, uh, as I've been preparing for this, for this um, sermon, uh, my son has been telling Alexa in his room uh, to play Peaches, uh, sung by Jack Black. Anybody know that from the movie Super Mario Brothers? And so there you also see a, a man singing a song to a woman. So anyway, that was, <laughs> Trey's like, <laughs> Alexa, play Peaches. I'm like, <laughs> and, 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 then, 
And then I'm like, well, it, it won't do it because I'm like, it's because you're yelling at her, you know? Uh, and then he got this, like, this Google, and he's like, hey, Google, pipey. Anyway, so uh, a man breaking out in the song when he sees a woman, true in the beginning, also true with animated people on uh, movies. Okay, <laughs> verse 24, it, it's, it's clear uh, that, the first, that this is the first married couple in Scripture, and this conveys God's design for marriage, and this is extremely important for us to see today because there are various distortions of marriage in our culture. So understanding Adam and Eve's relationship as God's divinely instituted template for marriage, we reaffirm with the scripture that God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman. And so this is within, it's within this design that God uh, married, that two married people literally fit together, as the text says, and become one flesh. So verse 24, it, it also highlights the reality of fidelity. The man was encouraged to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This was especially important for the time where uh, Moses was writing to them because folks were married very young, and they would live within the sort of compound, the household of the parents, and it was very important for everyone to know that their primary allegiance is not to the larger family, it's now to that new spouse. This also anticipates the phenomenon of the mama's boy. You know, uh, coming from a guy who loves his mother, uh, I learned to love my mom when she was the most important woman in my life, but after a man is married, we need to learn how to love our mothers when she's no longer the most important woman in our lives. So this kind of fidelity fosters the trust and the intimacy that we read about in verse 25. That's, that verse says again, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The physicality of this verse speaks to the greater reality of the pre-fall innocence, freedom from brokenness, freedom from shame. That is, this is what this signifies. And so this kind of relational trust and intimacy uh, results in the freedom to be physically naked and unashamed. And so at the end of Genesis chapter 2, it concludes with this emphasis on harmony between Adam and Eve and then harmony with them with God. And so there's three calls to worship for us as we sort of uh, round the bend on the end of our time together. Three calls that lead us to worship, and I'll just uh, state them very simply. The first is a call to see God for who he is. Throughout this text, we've seen that God is the creator. Everything in existence is because of him. And this just cause us to be in awe of our God. We also see that God as he is as our provider. So everything we have, no matter how hard you work, is from God. Everything that you eat, even like the house you live in, I mean, everything comes from God. I don't care how much of a self-made person you think you are, you're not. God is your provider. Full stop. God is also our protector. He protects us from ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Word, and the, and the help of the body of Christ. But he also is going to eventually protect us from anything that would harm or hurt us. And we look forward to that time, and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, to that. We, we call, this is a call to see God for who he is. Worship him in that way this week. Secondly, there's a call to repentance. For those who have messed up and, have, uh, follow, and who have not followed the Lord's commands, 
If you yourself have eaten the proverbial fruit from the tree that God said do not eat from, whatever sin that might be, we have to remember that the biblical story is a story of not just one, but two trees. We have this, the fruit that Adam and Eve have eaten. We ourselves have eaten from whatever sinful thing that the world has thrown out at us, and we shouldn't condemn ourselves, but we should look to the Gospels where there's another tree on a hill with a man who died on the cross and rose from the dead to die for all the stuff that we have done that's against his command. You don't have to bear the burden of your sin. In fact, you can't. Because a, a perfect God requires a, a perfect sacrifice, which you are not, but Jesus is. And if you will have him, his blood will cover over your every sin. Judgment is no longer on you, it's on Jesus. But he died, but he is the sacrifice that rose. And will be with him forever. This is a, there's a call to repentance here. And then thirdly, a call to obedience. After salvation, we are free to obey God. Not so that God will be pleased with us, because if you're in Christ, he's already pleased with you, but because you're just raptured by the goodness of God. And our obedience is for our good and for the good of our neighbors. It's not pointed up, but pointed outwards. And so if we're captivated by God and his goodness, our obedience will follow for his glory. So I know this is a, these are very, three very simple things coming out of a, a very uh, complex and loaded passage, but at the same time, let's worship God this week. Let's worship God for all that he's done, both in this creation, both working in and saving this creation and even us, and then out of that we, we love him with our obedience to him, following his commands. So let's pray and ask God's help for, for that as we conclude our, our time together in the scriptures. Father, we're just grateful that you continue to beckon us to yourself. Continue to um, be alive in your word as you say you will. God, we ask that you would uh, speak to us through this passage and even allow the Spirit to recall bits and pieces of what you have instructed us throughout this week and throughout this month. God, I pray that by your Spirit's help we would obey uh, your, your words, not because it's our salvation, but because of gratitude for what you've done. Father, thank you for being so kind to us. Thank you for being our protector. God, you put us in the garden, but we know that in the future you will put us in your kingdom through Christ to protect us, for us to have rest and to worship for your glory and our good. God, we thank you for all that you are. And I pray that, that that reality will be impressed upon our hearts even now. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time together in your name. Amen.